Welcome to the second season of Anti. I'm your host, Valerie Howard, and this first episode is dedicated to the martyrs. Please be advised that this episode may be difficult for some listeners to experience. Listener and or viewer discretion is advised. Thank you to all new and returning listeners and subscribers. Your support for the first season of Anti was overwhelming, and I am excited about this new season. I started this podcast because I wanted to shine a new light on a common reality. Everyone knows about the extremist outburst the world has been experiencing, and everyone knows Christian nationalism has had a hand in a clear majority of extremist movements. But I see something else. I believe this beast that's been powered to life by systemic Christian nationalism is the Antichrist, garnering support for the most ungodly ideas, all in the name of God. My podcast provides a space for an open community of people who believe love is truly indomitable, especially against the hatred Christian supremacists spew. I believe the more we normalize diverse connectivity and community, the closer we will get to a genuine American reconstruction, maybe even one that will be beyond just black and white people. Why is that so important, you ask? I believe Reconstruction is the kryptonite of religious extremism, and by extension, the Antichrist. The fact that religious extremism relies on rage and misunderstanding makes the united understanding of Reconstruction all the more effective. Christian extremism helped construct the Confederate pro-slavery argument and was a major vein in the heart of the Civil War. Former slave owners actually thought former slaves would try to do the same cruelty to them after they were freed. To me, that speaks volumes about the core motive of the sabotage of Reconstruction in America. The parable of Cain and Abel teaches us that treating those we fear the way that we fear being treated ourselves is a false sense of power. When we are motivated by our insecurities, we turn into destroyers claiming restoration and righteousness at the same time. The insecurity or deep-seated fear feels like justification enough to do the wrong things for the alleged right reasons. The Antichrist just wants to watch us all tear each other apart. I want to see us put each other back together. To briefly recap, the Antichrist is a system that believes in everything God rejects, while also deceiving many into thinking that it is God or God's will. Christian nationalism is not the totality of the Antichrist, but it is definitely the beating heart. With autocratic structure and fascist armor, the Antichrist is a monstrous distortion of who God is. The Antichrist would have you believe God is an abusive, toxic father who took out his anger on his son just to appease himself, or that the most important thing to God is destroying his enemies, or even that living in heaven is about getting due vengeance against sinners. Now that we know the end game of the Antichrist, how it was born out of the Christian religion and some of its major campaigns, we'll explore the intentions and consequences of the Antichrist's activity in regard to the Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of God goes beyond just the Christian religion. Clearly, if the Antichrist operates in the Christian religion, the Kingdom of God has to be something different. 
A good definition for the kingdom of God is any believer, Christian or otherwise, who serves and loves God and others unconditionally and without discrimination. When actively engaged in God's mission of unconditional ministry, we call the kingdom of God the church. Not all charity or religious organizations qualify as being part of this church that we call the kingdom of God. The church could be a neighborhood watch program, a climate justice program, an equality activist organization, even an officer who calls out police brutality, an honest physician, a church serving underserved children, or even a public figure who inspires greatness and grace in their followers. God's church is not socialist, capitalist, or fascist. It's whole, egalitarian, and pluralistic. Does the Antichrist activity from within the faith affect the church? Yes, absolutely, I think it does. But the true church of God will endure it and overcome it. In the first season, we talked about how the base operation of the Antichrist includes classism, which inevitably causes each class to be symbolized as generally positive or negative. This then leads to discrimination. Those who are discriminated against are also dehumanized, which is another core operation of the Antichrist. And at that point, all it takes is a few rounds of organized attacks to polarize a community or body of people. Polarization is a major campaign of the Antichrist. The Antichrist often uses deceptive profiteers in order to attract funding for its eventual planned ascent to power. But often by the time stakeholders realize that they have invested into something corrupt, it is too late to pull out or withdraw their support, at least not without exposing themselves in an unfavorable or in an illegal way. As we will learn in this episode, these kinds of power grabs almost always involve persecution. There are at least three sets of sevenfold events in Revelation, most notably the seals, the trumpets, and the vials. There is an interlude between the trumpets and the vials featuring seven wonders, but this series is often rightly interpreted as distinct from the main three. The seven seals are social crises, the trumpets are natural disasters, and the vials, with striking mere resemblance to the plagues of Egypt, are judgments that tie the destruction of the wicked to the destruction of the old heaven and the old earth. Therefore, a social reckoning was prophesied to be followed by a climate reckoning, and then the whole world will be judged. But for now, let's focus on the fact that Jesus said the sign of the end would be the Antichrist. Jesus implied that the Antichrist would be a global threat, not merely a Jewish one, according to Revelations. Daniel chapters 10 through 12, Matthew chapter 24, and Revelations chapter 6 through 9 all point to the Christian extremist beast as the Antichrist. So the same sign of the end that Jesus prophesied is this Christian extremist beast that we see on the rise today. This is not a drill. You may be exhausted or even numbed by daily calamity, but you should be still vigilant. Don't stop paying attention. It is no longer a matter of if you will be next, but rather when. Persecution Ruby Freeman and Wandrea Arche Moss Masa Amini Governor Gretchen Whitmer Officer Brian Sicknick 
Dr. Anthony Fauci, Ahmad Aubrey, George Floyd, Shanquella Robinson, Brianna Taylor, the slain of Uvalde Elementary School, immigrants seeking asylum in the UK and the US, Jews, Ukraine, Palestine, Afghanistan. Persecution is what typically happens when one is committed to villainizing another. Both lethal and non-lethal torment are considered acts of persecution. Therefore, there are living martyrs as there are deceased. Persecution is a hostile form of ill-treatment toward those portrayed as a threat to the more powerful societal norm. When we think of persecution, often the picture comes to mind of a stronger person overwhelming the weaker in order to force them under subjection. Persecution is a supremacist act of spite, desperation, and exasperation. As when a child tantrums recklessly when they have anything other than their way, persecutors retaliate violently or otherwise to prevent those that they dislike from experiencing the same level of power, independence, and freedom that they have. Often, persecution comes from a person, but it can also come from systems, organizations, or even entire communities of people at once. Systemic racism, organized fascism, and extremist communities all seek to subjugate and or punish their perceived enemies, sometimes for no reason other than the fear of a change in power dynamic as if it were impossible to share power and be better off at the same time. It's one thing to have this two-dimensional concept in your head about persecution, but it's another thing entirely to watch it unfold in your own country, your own capital, your own community, your own courthouse. On March 30th, 2023, the 45th President of the United States was indicted for illegal fraudulent activity which he committed to corrupt a U.S. presidential election. For four years, he persecuted anyone who chose to govern with integrity. Particularly in 2020, the world watched this scorned, twice-impeached ex-president organize the political persecution of four main groups of people with just a wink and a nod. Democracy defenders, social activists, healthcare workers, and immigrants suffered undue discrimination all over the globe, being politically or in some cases literally crucified for false reasons. Although nothing new, I couldn't help but notice something different about it, something dark and dreadful that I couldn't put my finger on. At least not until January 19, 2021. It actually had nothing to do with the second American insurrection in history. It was a declaration from the United States that China was guilty of despicable human rights violations against the Uyghurs. They are a desert-dwelling people, inhabiting the oases of the Tarim Basin in Central Asia and Northwest China. Gregory H. Stanton is a former George Mason University professor and also the founder and head of the Genocide Watch, started in 1999 and the Cambodian Genocide Project. A leading researcher on the gruesome topic of genocide, he is now mostly known for the policy model called the 10 Stages of Genocide, explaining how genocides develop and manifest. 
Similar to fascist outbursts, or even grief, genocide always happens in relatively predictable stages. When I saw the reports of the Ouija genocide come out, it was then that I had first heard of Stanton's 10 stages of genocide, of which persecution is the eighth. You want to know what the first seven are? I already said them, all throughout the course of Anti's first season. I repeat, the first seven stages of genocide are, in order, classism, symbolism, discrimination, dehumanization, organization, polarization, and preparation. If classism and dehumanization are core Antichrist operations, and polarization and persecution are two major Antichrist campaigns, wouldn't destruction be the endgame? Of course it is. Professor Stanton discovered that the final two stages are extermination and denial. We'll get to those two later, but right now we've got to stop and talk about why. Why is the Antichrist a genocidal system? Godly Vengeance 1 Samuel 15 verses 1 through 3 says this, Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way, when he came up from Egypt. Now go, and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not." But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. End quote. Of all scripture, the hardest to wrestle with or even read are those that promote violence or war, particularly when it comes from God. I don't know about anyone else, but for me, it's nauseating. We sing songs that God is perfect in all of His ways, and that He knows better than we do, and that He loves us. And then there is 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. There's Numbers chapter 5, verses 26 through 27, permitting abortion. There's a myriad of scripture endorsing misogyny and racism, rape, and worse, genocide. I understand scripture is allowed to have tension, but this is evil. No wonder many Christians leave Christianity and many non-Christians stay away from it. Look at what is written in this Bible. Look at it. Don't avoid it. Don't dodge or hide from it. Look at it. Now tell me God is good. Oh, presuming you actually said it, you had to say that with a little bit of faith that time, didn't you? Like standing before the Lion of Judah proclaiming, He won't scratch or bite me. There is faith, and then there are assumptions. Faith pleases God, not assumptions. Assumptions, well, you know what they say about those. I would like to share with you one of my favorite scriptures. It can be found in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 6 and 7. Quote, 
that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. How can a holy God commit unholy acts and still be holy? Allow me to digress as I explain it in a scenario. Let's say that I am a teacher. I write on the board 4 plus 4 equals 7. One of my students kindly tells me what I've written is wrong. She says 4 plus 4 equals 8. What I just did was write something on the board that was wrong. There is no question about that. Furthermore, I wrote the wrong thing intentionally. However, I'm not fired or even graded for the error that I made. I'm still the teacher. Now let's change roles. Let's say I asked a student to answer the question, 4 plus 4 equals what? Let's say I have a student that answers 7. I tell him that he's wrong and I note in my gradebook that he lost a point. Another student is called upon to make the correction, and that student earns a point. Because I am not a student in this classroom, but rather the teacher, I am not being graded or judged for the errors that I make. I am teaching how to identify something that is wrong. Let's look at this another way. If a plant misbehaves, it is treated. If I misbehave, I am rebuked. I am challenging assumptions we make about wrong or evil acts. We do respond to wrong acts differently if the position or the species changes. This is why we correct plants differently than we correct people. When we are talking about God, we have to change our language. I don't wilt when I'm dehydrated. Plants do. Plants don't make unintelligible noises to communicate. Animals do. God is more complete than human. He is eternal. Therefore, if misbehaving plants are treated, and if misbehaving humans are rebuked, a misbehaving God must also be handled differently. As with the teacher, we must evaluate God's action based on His position as well. God is not being graded. In this situation, He is the judge. This is why we respond to a death by the hands of a murderer differently than we do to a death by the sentence of a judge. God can fail one student, pass another, and he is still the teacher. The line of Judah can nuzzle one and tear another, and he is still Lord. When humans commit evil, we are appropriately called sinners. When God commits evil, he is properly called sovereign. If I say that I am five foot ten, I am lying to you. But if God says I am five foot ten, I'm going to need a new wardrobe because I will become five foot ten. The reason we respond to wrong acts differently, depending on who does it, is because the action technically changes with the station. If a student misanswers, it's called failure. But if the teacher misanswers, it's called testing. To see if the students can identify error on sight. Sovereignty is divine neutrality, a divinely neutralizing force capable of both washing sin clean of penalty as well as making our best righteousness as filthy rags. That way, God can judge based upon our unseen matters of the heart instead of the action alone. 
We cannot evaluate God like a human. We must evaluate God as sovereign. Therefore, the argument of divine vengeance that Christian extremists use to justify their violent or their extremist tendencies is egregious and unacceptable. Yours The one thing that gives me hope is eschatology, which is basically the end game of God. If we want to know the end game of God, we must see the repeating pattern of God since the beginning. It's typically easiest to find these patterns in the parables and straightforward documentaries of the Bible, as they are usually less complex. The Eden parable, for example, implies that God created humanity innocent but not holy. Righteousness is merely good merit, regardless of actual motive. So, being charitable out of love or for self-serving gains are equally righteous. However, holiness is spiritual maturity, especially after conflict or trial. God wanted humanity to choose Him freely. So, instead of forcing them to be holy or making them holy without a choice, He gave them a free will. How will God reconcile humanity when we deliberately chose to separate ourselves from Him? God redeems. God was not able to fully redeem Adam and Eve to himself in the garden and therefore still had to expel them, but what he did do in the meantime was redeem them to one another, even if it had to be through their consequences. God redeemed the male and the female heir closer to one another in Numbers chapter 27 through the trial of the daughters of Zelophehad. The older and the younger generations of Israel that was seen divided in Ezra chapter 3 verses 10 to 13, God redeemed them closer toward one another in Ezra chapter 6 verses 15 through 17. The same pattern continues throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, right into Jesus' parables. One of the most heartfelt and popular parables is that of the prodigal son, found in Luke chapter 15 verses 11 through 32. The language of the Amplified Version is particularly powerful per the masterful insight of Dr. Frank Machia, Christian theologian and professor at Vanguard University of Southern California. In his book, Jesus the Spirit Baptizer, Christology in Light of Pentecost, Machia says, quote, The Father immediately sets the angry son straight and in a way that cuts right to the core of the key issue at stake. The family is not based on what one deserves or does not deserve. Everything I have is yours, the father says. No amount of extravagance displayed at a celebration can match that. It is rather about a deeper sense of justice that is merciful and seeks the restoration of lost bonds of love and mutual regard. It is about a merciful justice that celebrates the restoration of the lost. But it is also about accountability. When the older brother refers to his brother as that son of yours in the midst of his complaint, the father responds with, no, this brother of yours. The compassion of God's kingdom is not mere sentiment. It arises from insight into how we are bound together by God's image and God's calling. It awakens in us the idea that to betray each other is to betray ourselves. The only way for the older brother to find grace is to grant it to the younger one to whom God has made him accountable. 
End quote. If we take a second to look at Jesus' parables and his conversations about the Gentiles and the Jews, we can see this very same pattern. The soteriological, or salvation-related, motive of God is to redeem humanity to himself, but his eschatological, or anti-motive, is to redeem neighbor to neighbor, brother to brother. God wants most of all for humanity to look at his neighbor and repent. More than anything, God wants every neighbor to forgive their neighbor, no matter the offense. Sometimes the things that we expect from our neighbor isn't something they can actually give. Sometimes we grow to hate our neighbor because we expect something of them that only God can give. Our neighbors are the ones that we often call our opponents or our enemies. But what we often fail to see, as Machia so poignantly made clear, is that the moment that we attempt to exclude our neighbor out of the idea of heaven or God's kingdom simply because of their sin or what we disapprove about them, we immediately condemn ourselves to the same fate. That was the basis of most of Jesus' warnings. If you truly intend to be committed to the kingdom of God, you will do the work God requires. Repent to your neighbor. Forgive your neighbor. Find wholeness in being your neighbor's neighbor. And do not be offended like the elder brother when God redeems your neighbor, no matter how much more you believe that you deserve than them. Who is my neighbor? Of course, the Antichrist wants to see neighbor destroy neighbor, because God's kingdom is neighbor serving neighbor. In the message translation of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said this, quote, Watch out for doomsday deceivers. Many leaders are going to show up with forged identities claiming, I am the Christ, the Messiah. They will deceive a lot of people. When reports come in of wars and rumored wars, keep your head and don't panic. This is routine history. This is no sign of the end. Nation will fight against nation and ruler fight ruler over and over. Famines and earthquakes will occur in various places. This is nothing compared to what is coming. They are going to throw you to the wolves and kill you, everyone hating you because you carry my name. And then, going from bad to worse, it will be dog-eat-dog, dog, everyone at each other's throat, everyone hating each other. In the confusion, lying preachers will come forward and deceive a lot of people. For many others, the overwhelming spread of evil will do them in. Nothing left of their love but a mound of ashes. End quote. I have said this before in a previous episode, and I must say it again. How interesting it is that Jesus was prophesying about the Antichrist, the literal sign of doomsday, and yet his primary concern was the mental and emotional state of people. I would have thought that Jesus would have talked about something more pressing, like war or nuclear threat, but those are the very things that he downplays. Instead, he highlights the deceptive and manipulative people, the coldness and apathy of people's hearts, and the systematic escalation and promotion of public hatred, to the point where political heat turns into something like a civil war. Now, an international war could be a country over here versus a country over there. But a civil war means neighbor versus neighbor. Jesus was trying to highlight that the Antichrist doesn't really care about nation against nation, 
as much as it does about neighbor against neighbor, especially since Jesus issued a commandment requiring us to love our neighbor. This hatred of neighbor, under the false pretense of the commandment of God, is antichrist, according to 1 John 4, verse 20. The neighbor-against-neighbor dynamic Jesus warns of in Matthew 24 is prevalent in Daniel chapters 10 through 12 and throughout Revelations. Something else George Stanton was careful to note was that genocide, the epitome of human evil, happens between neighbors. Think of the Armenian genocide. Think of the Holocaust. They were not stranger against stranger. The Antichrist tempts with dreams of a world Christian empire where no other religion is allowed to exist, as if God never called a polytheistic man out of the land of Ur to become a father of many nations. I don't really understand how or exactly why so many Christians think that the kingdom of God is a community full of people who are distinguished just by their religion. God's son was never a Christian, so I am not sure why Christianity is worshipped when it should, in fact, be God. But what I do understand is that the longer people think that way, the faster it is going to come down to a decision between Christianity and Christ. You can only serve one master, not two. John never said in the beginning was Christianity. He said in the beginning was the Word. Jesus the Christ is God. The Christian empire fantasy is a supremacist conspiracy. It requires the elimination of the neighbor in order to exist. No Muslims, no Jews, no Buddhists. Everyone must be exactly as we are. Therefore, the Christian empire fantasy is not only supremacist, but it has genocidal tendencies. Simply because it bears the name Christian, Conspirators of this fantasy think that it is above correction. They therefore refute blatantly obvious and accurate accusations about their extremist views. Instead of humbling themselves, they justify themselves, similarly to the lawyer who wished to limit Jesus' definition of the word neighbor, in order to limit his obligation to his own God's commandment. The Gospel of Luke chapter 10 verse 29 reveals that this lawyer essentially asked a question, when am I allowed to stop caring? Where is the line where I am allowed to not love certain people that I don't like? Jesus, who is my neighbor? When can I stop forgiving and start penalizing? When can I stop being gracious and start forcing people to do what I want through law and lawsuits? When am I allowed to hate my neighbor? The Antichrist doesn't feed off of this desire to fight against those who are different. The Antichrist preaches it, right from the pulpit. The Antichrist prays for such a hatred, right at the altar. In the previous season, we learned about the first four seals, notably known as the Four Horsemen. They are not the Antichrist, but rather outcomes of the Antichrist's long-standing oppression in the earth, which Jesus calls the beginning of sorrows in Matthew chapter 24. Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 is the fifth seal, or the cry of the martyrs. More after this. Hey, want to stay up to date on the latest anti-podcast episodes or be the first to hear the cinematic audiobook release date for Kingdom of Gold? 
just head on over to my website, kaylin.info, to stay up to date on all the things you need to know. That's C-A-Y-L-A-N dot info. You can also stay connected with me by following me on Instagram or TikTok. You can find all of my social media handles on my website at kaylin.info. That's C-A-Y-L-A-N dot I-N-F-O. Cry of the Martyrs What is significant about the cry of the martyrs? At first, the fifth seal may not appear to be as serious as the others, but it most definitely is. It may even be the most critical seal of all. Martyrs often become symbols of hope. Hope is contagious. Hope creates uproar. All it takes is a spark. It is the response of the world to the martyrs that is significant. The deaths of George Floyd, Masa Gina Amini, and the students and teachers of the Evalde mass shooting shook nations. When their blood was shed, the outcry reached far and wide. The whole world listened. Sometimes when ordinary people, or even unwitting participants of societal and systemic problems, see devastation a little too close to home, they realize they are not exempt So they stand up and cry out for the voiceless, rocking communities, nations, and governments until it is felt at an institutional level. Revelation 6 verse 12 uses the word earthquake. Let's briefly overview the context of the fifth seal, especially in light of the first four seals and the sixth seal that comes after it. The type of exegetical analysis of the four horsemen that I provided last season was a cross between a didactic and existential methods, using historical and actualization criticisms respectively. Because I believed the history surrounding my pericopes or sections of scripture were important and that the meaning of my thesis was also significant, I investigated relative evidences to see if they proved or disproved that the Antichrist or the sign of the end was pointing to a particular pattern of events in the future, except on a global scale. The white horseman represents pandemic, the red horseman conflict, the black horseman famine, and the pale horseman death. So under the leadership of a corrupt political victor, whose only strategy is to divide and conquer, multiple crises break out under his administration, setting up every subsequent administration for chaos and struggle. Starting with pandemic, this corrupt leader instigates war, famine, and death wherever he goes. With the world turned on its head, and the economy fixed against the weak and the poor, the wicked are emboldened to squeeze more power in their favor. Using the momentum of victory from the corrupt leader or white horseman, the wicked take advantage of the godly any way they can, causing a major outcry. There is an increase in the number of people who lose everything important to them just doing what they believe in. Staying in the theme of revelations, these are political martyrs. In the vision, these martyrs were physically located under an altar in the vision that John was seeing. It is important that we note here that they are not literally called martyrs in this passage, but rather they are described as such. It is not immediately clear whether or not these are the martyrs who lost their lives under this wicked ruler's leadership, or that they were already deceased from previous generations, or a mix of both. 
Regardless, they are instructed to wait until their fellow servants, which are presently suffering under the wicked leader, also suffer martyrdom. The language here can be difficult to deal with. Using the language from verse 11, why should more lives be lost? And why does the heavenly speaker call this a fulfillment? The F word. Whenever Jesus did or said something so that scripture might be fulfilled, one might think that he was a mere actor playing a part. However, there are other ways to look at fulfillment. We fulfill things all the time. Granting a dying wish or living up to the stipulations written in the will and testament of a deceased loved one. Even on a simpler level, we fulfill course credits or binding contracts. Just because Jesus knew what the scripture said before he fulfilled it doesn't mean that he was merely acting. In the same way that you know what you have to do in order to fulfill the credits of a course, you're doing more than just playing a part. You're earning something greater. That is what Jesus means by fulfillment. But that doesn't make the question easier to ask. What are these martyrs earning with their very lives? The answer is yet to be revealed. What happens in Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 is just the beginning of the martyr story. Whereas in chapter 7 they were appeased, in the end of chapter 18 they are vindicated, and at the top of chapter 19 they are fully redeemed. Something very significant comes with the cry of the martyrs, and that is the promise of God. In Revelation 6 verse 11 it says, And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little while. Symbolized by white robes, a promise from God is not an ordinary thing. Receiving a fulfillment of God's promise is an appreciated experience. The longer you wait for it, its value increases. Exponentially. This is why the martyrs were under the altar when we see them at the opening of the fifth seal and exalted in heaven after the very next seal is opened. The martyrs that are delayed and disappointed in the fifth seal begin to experience some relief as soon as chapter 7 and are completely fulfilled by chapter 19. With as much as they had going against them, how do things eventually turn around for them? Defining event. Now, notice after the cry of the martyrs, the chaos suddenly begins to turn on the same corrupt leadership that was responsible for the first four seals. The cry of the martyrs is not a point to overlook. In fact, it is the defining event. In the sixth seal, what we see happening is cosmic disturbances. Often when we see the sun, moon, and stars used together in scripture, as in Joseph's first dream, it symbolizes leadership. The sun and moon indicate the top two ranks, and the stars often indicate either the military or the tertiary powers reporting to the top. Other times, as in Revelation 12 verse 1, the appearance of the sun, moon, and stars together symbolize the church, as in the Song of Solomon. Finally, these can also refer to the actual stars and moon in space such as in Deuteronomy 4 verse 19 or Psalm 148 verse 3. Here at the end of Revelation 6, this is all still political symbology playing out, which makes this scripture a depiction of the collapse of national institutions, which isn't too far removed from the headlines today. 
The depiction of every mountain and island being moved from their place speaks to a paradigmatic shift of the global political map and world order, which appropriately describes the aftermath of the 45th American presidential term. Now, autocracy and democracy are outright competing for world power. The darkening of the sun symbolizes the corruption of national leadership at the highest levels, while the blood moon indicates internal fissures or political schisms within the highest levels of power. The falling stars indicate a power shift. As old power falls away, both good and evil power grab for control first. The sky splitting apart in verse 14 is another symbol too. If the sun, moon, and stars symbolize leadership, the heaven or the sky they abide in must be their system of government, like autocracy, democracy, or monarchy, for example. The sixth seal depicts the rupture of healthy political balance, that is, political fissuring. Blood. The same institutions that corrupted for their own sake suddenly begin to find corruption within their own ranks. Then, by the end of the sixth seal, what started as chaos on earth seemingly escalates into chaos from heaven. Scripture consistently shows how attentive God is to the cry of His people. God takes His own very seriously and becomes an enemy of those who are an enemy of His children. Even in Eden, God promised the devil would be crushed by the heel of the child of the very woman He beguiled. It is the promise of God that makes the difference. But a promise is like a contract. It means absolutely nothing until it is signed by both parties. How do we sign the contract? We sign with our blood. Not our death, but with our lives. Genesis 9 verse 5 says God required lifelong service and devotion. Our blood, in essence. The Jewish Passover is one of the most poignant religious reminders of the significance of blood to God. The blood of Jesus was priced at sufficient cost to cover the sin of all and therefore purchase salvation for all who receive it. Hebrews 9.22 says, And almost all things are by the law cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood is no forgiveness. Because of the blood of the martyrs, the promise of God was released, turning the tide in favor of His kingdom. Blood, especially in Scripture and ancient Jewish culture, was symbolic of forgiveness. Here's the other F word. But we've heard this one before. In previous episodes, I mentioned four spiritual weapons we would need to endure this apocalyptic tribulation. Wholeness, repentance, redemption, and forgiveness. Revelation is more than just about judgment. Amidst all the chaos and calamity caused by corrupt leadership, which has caused so much mistrust and hatred, forgiveness has to be the cycle breaker. I think most of us can agree it usually hurts more to forgive than having been hurt in the first place. We bleed in a spiritual way when we forgive. And the sting of it can make us feel a sense of spiritual martyrdom in the moment. But this is what it takes to turn the tide. So, what do you say, neighbor? Are you in or are you anti? This anti-episode was written, edited, and produced by me through the Spotify Podcasters app. For access to all citations and references for this episode, please click the link, which will take you directly to the website page. Please like and share this podcast if you enjoyed it, and feel free to rate and leave a review. Next time on Anti.
To some people, redemption can be a wonderful thing, like redeeming a winning lottery ticket. To others, redemption is a threat, like serving out a lawful prison sentence. Do the crime, redeem the time. The anti-Christian is so threatened by redemption, sometimes they confuse it with persecution, and they do whatever they can to convince other people that they are being persecuted rather than redeemed, and therefore inevitably they push away and resist what is actually God's desired will. <laughs>